Good evening. Oh, man, it's so good to be here. Whoa, that is not working. And I broke the chair. See, I shouldn't have had that second burger. Man. Dude. <laughs> Woo, all right. Fair enough. Well, that gets solved. <laughs> um, <laughs> grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. Um, that's where we're going to jump into tonight. It's a fabulous chapter. Um, fair warning, we are in 1 Corinthians. So PG-13. It's just kind of the nature of the book. So if you were wondering about checking your kids into the kids' wing, do it. All right? <laughs> Don't say I didn't warn you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we get to be here this evening to study your word, to see what it has to share with us. I pray that this evening it would be a sword, double-edged, that pierces joints and marrows, that we walk away wounded even by your word, and it would make us change and make us aware and that, Father, we would also be blessed by it and encouraged by it and built up because it's bread of life for us as well. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 6. We've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And what we have here, if you haven't uh, been recently or if you're not familiar, 1 Corinthians is a church that has got a, quite a few issues with it. Paul went, he started this church, he established it, and then he left and he gets this report from the people of the church that there's, there's quite a few problems in the church. There's things that are not going well. And so Paul writes this letter to the church to address these issues. All right, and some of the issues that they have are they have issues with leadership and they argue about who's the greatest and I follow Paul and I follow Cephas. And then they have issues specifically with this one person in the church who was involved in some really bad sexual sins and the church was celebrating it. That's what we dealt with last week. But then in chapter six, Paul continues to address issues, but I think he makes a little bit of a switch because he's gonna focus in on a couple issues of the church, but he's taking a step back. And what I really feel like Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians in chapter six, what I feel like Paul has been speaking into even my life this last couple weeks as I've been studying this, is there's an underlying root to the rotten fruit of what's going on in Corinth. And it's this, they had a bad perspective. Their perspective was wrong. See, they got saved, they came to the church, and they thought it was really just only supposed to change how they spent Sundays. But Paul's like, no, this changes everything. Everything gets changed by the knowledge of what you have when you became a Christian, by what Jesus has in store for you. What Paul really wants the Corinthians to have from this chapter six is a perspective change. You need to think long-term, you're way too near-sighted. And I think that so easily and often I fall into that same category, which is why I'm so excited about this chapter. But when I was thinking about that concept, it reminded me of a visual illustration I saw years ago. So I stole this, it's fairly common, you guys might have seen it before. But if you haven't, you'll be blessed. If you, uh, if you have seen it before, I was interested even this week remembering. So you gotta imagine with me, that this rope here, it's a timeline of your existence. 
And it goes on forever, for eternity. See, we are eternal beings. But see this little red part here? That's our life on earth. That's all we have. And the problem is that it's so easy for us, like the Corinthians, to become obsessed with this little red part here. This little part here is all we think about and we forget about all of this and what Jesus has for us in eternity and instead we're just laser focused on this. And oh man, if I can just work really hard in this little section here, then man, I can enjoy that little piece right there. Maybe I can save up enough money right here that I can travel right here. Oh man, someone hurt me, that's gonna affect from here to, to here, oh, that's gonna be tough. And it's not that this doesn't matter. What the Bible says is so interesting. It says how we spend this little piece here determines how we're gonna spend millions and millions and millions of years of eternity with Christ in heaven. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians tonight and what I was reminded of is this. This is important, but it's only important in relationship to all of the rest of it. Does that make sense? And that's what Paul's gonna focus in on tonight. And he's gonna say this one phrase five times in this chapter. He's gonna say this, do you not know? Don't you know this? You need to know this, Corinthians. And every time he says that, he is trying to get them to stop focusing on this piece and to look at the longer picture. Don't you know this is but a vapor? Don't you know? Don't you know? And so he's going to use two issues that the Corinthians are having to illustrate that point, but I think the point goes deeper than just these two issues, but the two issues are pretty good ones. He's going to deal with money and sex. So there we go. Let's dive in. Chapter 6, verse 1, here's what it says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? What was happening in the church was this. Paul gets word back, hey, there's quite a few people in the church, and they're suing each other in court. Christians from this side of the church who always sit over here and who always sit over there, they have an issue, and they've taken it to court, and they're suing each other. And Paul says that ought not to be so. Now, quickly, before we move on, I want to clarify, he's not talking about criminal cases. He's not saying that the church should try criminal cases. Paul himself took his case to Rome, didn't he? To say, hey, look, you can't put me on trial and put me to death without taking me to Caesar. That's criminal. What we're dealing with here is civil manners. What we're really talking about is money, right? What is always the verdict on a Judge Judy episode? Someone owes someone else money. That's what it is. That's what we're talking about here. These people are taking each other to court over money, 
And Paul says, it shouldn't be that way. You should be able to handle matters within the church. Don't you know, and here's the first two things he says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Did you know that you and I someday will judge the world? That's crazy to me. There's a couple verses um, in Revelations that talk about it. There's some other verses elsewhere. But basically it says that Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. In another place, Jesus says, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. Don't you know? Don't you know? You should be able to handle these things amongst yourselves. Someday, you're gonna judge the entire world. Don't you know, Christian? And then he says another one. Don't you know that we are to judge angels? And I read that and I go, uh, no, Paul. Actually, we did not know that. <laughs> I was like, no, that's not common knowledge. Don't know where else that comes from in scripture. And we could dive into that. You can glean this out of a few verses in Daniel and a few other places. But I don't think this verse that Paul's saying here is supposed to be dissected. I think it's supposed to shock you. What? what, what I'm gonna judge angels? Do you know how crazy that is? You and I are going to judge angels. What does that mean? I have no idea. All I know is that kind of shocks me, right? Because angels, angels are kind of crazy. Like I met a guy um, on a job years ago. I do work on people's wells and stuff all over the place. And so I meet some characters. They're wonderful people. But I met a guy and he was like, he was, he was a younger guy. And he was like, dude, I saw an angel yesterday. And I was like, were you scared? And he goes, no. And I go, then it wasn't an angel. Because what happens every time someone in the Bible sees an angel? They freak out. Ah! Right? God said, Paul says, don't you know? You're going to judge angels someday. You're going to judge angels. I think that's crazy. And what he's saying here, the overarching principle is this. Our future destiny implies a current responsibility. We have this future hope and glory. We have a future calling to rule and reign with Christ for eternity. And that future destiny implies some current responsibility. And that responsibility in the church is we're supposed to act like that. We're supposed to act like we know that for all of eternity, we're going to rule and reign with him. And we can handle these things and we can deal with these things and we can do difficult things because it's a lot more than just this. We're supposed to know that. And it means this. It means that, that the church itself is supposed to be able to handle things within the church. That's what he's saying. And the language that Paul here uses here is also interesting to me because it's very, very strong. Paul says basically this. Hey, I heard some of you guys are suing each other. How dare you? That's what he says. How dare you? And then he says this. I say this to your shame is really interesting because two chapters ago, Paul was making fun of the Corinthians. And then at the end of it, it goes, but I'm not saying this to shame you. Here he's like, I'm saying this to shame you. You guys look no different than the world. Shame on you. You look no different than the world. And you're giving 
the church a bad name by taking these matters into civil court. We should look different. It's made me think, I've just been mulling this over and this is not a completed idea or thought, but I wonder how many things we do in the church that we allow the government to do that we should be handling in-house, you know? Like how many people are getting assistance from the government when we should be helping them from the church? And that's a long discussion, I get it. But it just made me think, like what would Paul say? Would he say, don't you realize you're supposed to rule and reign for eternity? You can handle this. You guys can take care of each other. This is supposed to be, the church, Paul says, is supposed to be a full service community. We can handle this. We're a family, and we will take care of this in-house. We won't take it out of house. There's an argument. We handle it here. So if there is an issue, right? So this, this is just really practical. If there is an issue, if you've been wronged by someone else in the church, how are you supposed to handle it? It's Matthew 18. Here's what Jesus says. I think a lot of us have heard this passage. Let me read it to you. Here's what Jesus says is the way we're supposed to handle disputes within the church. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So first, keep it private. And if that doesn't work between the two of you, don't go public. You grab a couple other people within the church. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We keep it private and we deal with it. And then the question becomes this, all right, what if that doesn't work? Right? What if the person that I say wronged me doesn't want to talk with other people, refuses to go to Christian arbitration, which is the terms we use, refuses to talk to the church about it. What do I do then? Just let it go. Just let it go. You mean like just let, yes, just let it go. That's what Paul says next. Look at this. I think the next verse in this chapter might be one of the toughest verses in the Bible. Not toughest to understand, it's really straightforward. Toughest to walk out, look what he says. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brother. Instead of suing that person, just let it go. Why not just let yourself be defrauded? Why not just let yourself be wronged? Because because it's not right. Well, first off, being right is overrated. I don't know if you've ever been right in your marriage and then still slept on the couch, okay? It happens. Sometimes being right is just overrated and we just push too hard for it. But even more so, I think what Paul is saying is this. Listen, the mission of the big C church to preach the gospel, to reach believers, it's more important than whatever your little personal issue is that's going on. Because souls need to be saved. Because whatever it is, however much money it is, it might affect that much. And you might burn a brother for an extremely long time. 
See, so this came up practically for me a few years ago. I had this job, and this is a little bit different because it wasn't between me and a Christian brother, but I think the principle holds true. So I had this job, I went out, did a bunch of work for the customer. It was a couple thousand dollars worth of work. And then they didn't pay me, they didn't pay me, they didn't pay me. So I went and knocked on the door and they used some very colorful language and ran me off of their property. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? That's thousands of dollars. And so I was talking to Chad Hansen about it because he's a business owner. And I was like, Chad, what am I supposed to do? And here's what he told me. He said, I don't know. He said, but whatever you do, make sure that if that guy suddenly someday decides to come to church and he walks through those doors and he sees you, he doesn't turn around and leave. And I was like, oh, because it's more important. It's so much, that, it, yes, it was money, but it's like, it's, I mean, look at this. Look at all of eternity. I'm not gonna care. I still don't, I don't know how much money it was anymore. I don't care anymore. It's not important. Whatever it is, isn't as important as the work of the kingdom, right? But what about justice, you say? And I get that. That's why this verse is so hard because there's something deep down in us that's like, no, I want justice. That's not just, that's not right. Well, look at what Paul says about justice. It's really interesting. It's the next verses. He's gonna say three things about justice that I think is important for us to understand. He says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What about justice, you say? Oh, you want justice, says Paul? Look at your past life. Look at the things you've done. Look at the way you've wronged God and then tell me if you want justice. And such were some of you and such was I and such were you and such were all of us. And I think it's really important when we've been wronged and I get that to stand back and be like, yes, but I've also wronged. And Jesus forgave me and cleansed me because it's not just that we need to point one, look at our wrongs. We need to look at what was done with our wrongs. What does it say? It says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. All three of those are past tense and passive. Jesus did all of those for every single one of us. I think that when we really struggle with personal justice, that when we've been wronged, it means that we don't have a really good understanding of grace. And I don't mean justice like for people who've been oppressed. We are supposed to be champions of justice. We are supposed to protect the oppressed. Remember the topic we're talking about here. You've wronged me and it cost me money. 
and I'm ticked, and I'm right, and I want justice. And he says, I don't know if you really do want justice, and don't forget you've been forgiven for everything that you've ever done. I washed you, I cleansed you, I purified you, I sanctified you, and I did it for them too. Or I didn't, if they haven't accepted it. Either way, Jesus says, that's been paid for. I used to do this, I've told this story many times, but it, it always comes back to me. I used to, to put the word, gra- I used to work in a check stand, and it would, I did not like working in a check stand because, well, the, the general public, um, right? With their kids, and they would, and, right? And so I, I wrote grace on my hand here, and I would see it every time I scanned it, I'd beep, grace, beep, grace, beep, grace, beep, grace. And it wasn't so I could remember to give grace to them because that seemed impossible. It was to remind me how much grace I'd been given. Oh my goodness, I can't stand your kid. Beep, I've been given grace. Oh, are you seriously writing a check? Beep, no, I've been given grace. Oh, right? Grace, grace. How much grace have I been given? And such were some of you but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. And when we feel personally wronged, I think we need to remember how much personal grace we've received. And that helps me a little bit better to walk out that tough verse. Yeah, I can just be defrauded. Why? Because I've received so, so much. But there's one other thing here that's really interesting because he says this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. In reverse, he's reminding you, you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. You have an unbelievable inheritance. Do you really care about that little wrong? It'd be like this. It would be like if today you got a phone call and you found out that Elon Musk had changed his will and named you as the sole beneficiary. You're gonna inherit everything Elon owns. And that afternoon you go to the grocery store and someone puts a door ding in your 96 Mazda. Do you care? No, why? Because your inheritance is so great. And I think what Paul is saying here is, listen, you guys are suing each other. You're bickering over money. You've lost your point and you don't even realize how much you have in store for you or I swear you wouldn't care. You wouldn't care because of how much inheritance you have. And if you're really concerned about justice and that person really, really, really has wronged you, then don't worry about it. They're not getting inheritance. There's this really interesting verse in Psalm chapter one that I've been thinking about the other day. Let me read it for you. Because at first you go, what? It's a head scratcher. It says this, the wicked are not so, but are are like chaff that the wind will drive away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And I'm like, wait a minute, I want the wicked to stand in judgment. But he's not talking about the judgment of their sins. He's talking about the judgment of rewards where the inheritance is handed out. And if that person really, really has wronged you that bad, either God has paid for their sins or you're getting an inheritance they haven't. Either way, you win, right? It's such a a perspective change that Paul 
wants for us here. Amen? We were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified. I've been given so much grace. I have such an inheritance coming for me. I can be defrauded. I can be wronged. It doesn't hurt me. It doesn't affect me because I'm eternal and I have eternal rewards. And then he says this in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What a great verse. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Here's what Paul says. Listen, it's not about rules. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's so much bigger than that. It's about goals. Okay, so here's the best illustration I have. My daughter, um, she's in fourth grade, and so she has like 30-some, because my sister's her teacher and she's kind of crazy, my, she has like 30-some spelling words every week, okay? And she does not like studying her spelling words. And it's like the valley of the shadow of death at my house when it's spelling time. So the other day, it's like the day before her test. And so I give her her little test and she gets like three quarters of them wrong. So I send her back to her room. Go, write them all out again, spell them, and then come back. And so she does that, much tears, comes back. She gets pretty much the same amount wrong. Go back to your room, write them down again, and come back out here. More wailing, more gnashing of teeth. Tries it again, comes back, same amount wrong. I'm like, go back, and I go, hold on a second. I said, does writing your words out help you learn them? No. Well, then let's do something different. That, uh, it's not about the rule of you writing your words out. It's about the goal of you learning how to spell them. So this, the next week, we started different. Okay, let's do something different. I go, what do you want to try? How do you want to learn them? I go, I don't care if you quiz me. She goes, that would be fun. And here's what I learned. I can't spell fourth grade words. <laughs> and also, it really helps her lock them in as she's quizzing me. It's so interesting. But here's the point. The point is, it's not about the rule that I set out right down. The, it's about the goal. And that's what Paul's saying. Listen, you got to step back. We get so hung up on what the rules are and we miss what the goal is. And when we realize that the Christian life is supposed to be focused on the goal, it's both freeing and focusing at the same time. Because when I'm always looking at all the little rules and all the little regulations and the things to do and the things to not do, my focus is, is split and it's, it's shallow. But when I keep my eyes focused on the one thing, the finish line, then it focuses me. It's not about rules. It's about the goal. And what's the goal? The goal is the finish line. Right there. The thing that's called death that everyone's afraid of, that's the goal. That's where we're trying to get to. That we get there and we walk across the finish line with hands raised and we meet our Father and spend eternity. That's the goal. And that on that journey, we become more and more like him. But here's the thing, in order to evaluate whether our practices are meeting our goals, we have to test them, don't we? Right, like with my, my daughter and the spelling words, we tested her later that week and I'm like, whoa, this is working. 
This is helping. So what we have to do, if we're going to do what Paul says here and be goal-oriented and not rule-oriented people, is we have to test our actions. And he gives us two questions to ask. Is this helpful? And is this dominating me? Does this thing serve me or am I serving it? Is this helpful? Is this practice that I'm doing, the way that I'm approaching the Lord? Maybe you, you, you try to get up every morning and you're like, I'm gonna spend half an hour in prayer and you just fall asleep. And you're like, this is not working. Let's do something else. Let's get coffee and go for a walk and pray. Let's, is it helpful? Is this working to push you towards the goal of becoming more like Jesus? And when we look at our habits and our vices, which is really just another habit, right? We call them vices when they're bad habits and habits when they're good habits, but it's the things we do on a consistent basis. Do they own us or do they serve us? Right, and there's so many things like this. Uh, health, like working out, people who go to the gym, that can serve you. It can give you more energy. It can give you better health. It can give you longer life. It can give you the ability to go out and serve and care for your family, or you can become a servant to it. We've met those people, right? It's the guys who look like a chicken, just like this with the tiny little legs. Are you serving it or is it serving you? Your career, your relationships, money, all great things if they're serving us and we're not serving them. Paul says, listen, stop worrying about the nitty gritty goals, the rules, and look at the goal and ask yourself, is the way I'm living my life, are the things that I'm doing habitually, are they helpful and are they serving me or am I serving them? I think it's a really good thing for us to do. And I think too often as 21st century Americans, we never stop and reflect back. We're too distracted to stop and go, okay, let me look at the last month. We're coming to the end of the year. Look at 2022. Was the way you lived your life helpful for you in this life as we strive towards the end and the finish line? Or were there things that you would go, you know what, that wasn't that helpful. I was kind of dominated by that. Let's make a change, right? So now he switches from money and this general principle of looking at goals, and he switches to talk about sex. And he's gonna say four things about sex, which I think are very, very interesting. The first thing he says is this. We, as humans, we were not made for sex. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We're not made for sex. Or to put it another way, sex is not the pinnacle of the human experience. And I think we've made it out to be that way. We've made the idea of romantic love and the physical part that goes with that. And we've taken this whole thing and we said that is the pinnacle of the human experience experience. And if it is, then Jesus lived a subhuman life, right? Why do we hold that up as the most important thing there is? It's really interesting. In the next chapter, Paul's going to discuss marriage. 
And he's going to be like, hey, if you're not married, don't bother getting married. Like, there's a lot more important things. And for so many of us, I look at that and I'm like, what are you talking about? Marriage is amazing. And it is. It's beautiful. It's a picture of Christ in the church. But marriage is the picture. So often we think Christ in the church is the picture of marriage. No, marriage is the picture. Christ in the church is the real thing. It's what we're really striving towards. And I think as a church, we need to remember this. It's not the pinnacle of the human experience. You can live a long, satisfying, fulfilling, amazing life without romantic love or sex. Jesus did. Jesus did. And when we put it on a pedestal, we've taken a good gift and we've idolized it. And that becomes dangerous because then we think we need it. That's the thing. If it is the pinnacle of the human experience, then I need it to be fulfilled and I will have it. That's what they say here. There's a saying that the Corinthians have, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. The saying was this, like when I'm hungry, I'm eat. When I wanna have sex, I have sex. It's an appetite, it's important. It's what I need to be filled. And Paul says, no, it's not. That's not what you were made for. He says, you were made for the Lord and the Lord was made for you. And that is the pinnacle fulfilling experience of life. So that's the first thing he says about sex. The second thing he says is this, there's no secret sex. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So the big issue in Corinth at this time was prostitution. So there was a temple in the city and every night thousands of prostitutes would come down into the city and do what everybody does. And here's the thing about it. It was thought of as secret because it's not seen by your family or by other people that you know. And it was thought of as socially acceptable. What sexual sin this day do we think of as secret and for a very large portion of the people socially acceptable? It's pornography. When you read prostitution in 1 Corinthians, just insert the word pornography. That's what we're dealing with today, what they dealt with then. And what Paul says is this, it's not secret. It's not secret. Jesus is with you at all times. How then will you take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? It's not secret. It will come out and Jesus is with you and he knows. And then he says this, there's no casual sex. Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Same thing, Corinthians thought, oh, it's just a prostitute. So it's not as big of a deal as if I was to cheat on my wife. It's not as big of a deal as adultery. It doesn't really matter as much. It's just sex with a prostitute. And Paul says, no, there is a spiritual element to all of this and it's not casual and never will be. And I get it that the, the comparison between pornography and prostitution maybe falls apart a little bit here. And we think, well, that's different. 
then if I was to go and sleep with a prostitute, that is different than pornography. Yes, but they are very, very close. Mark Scud said said something to me in my marriage counseling 17 years ago that shocked me. He said, if your wife finds out that you're looking at pornography, she's going to view it as cheating. And I was like, that's not true. And then I looked over at her and I was like, oh, crud, it is. That's true because it's that serious and it destroys. And here's the thing. I do not know anybody who's committed adultery who has not first become addicted to pornography. I don't know the person. Maybe they're out there, but I don't know it. There's no, it's not casual. It's not casual. It's not secret. It's destructive. And Paul is like, you've got to stay away from it because it is especially, especially destructive. And that's the final thing. It's the most destructive sin. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's unbelievably destructive. And it's gotta stop. It's gotta stop. But here's the encouraging thing. When you look back at this list that Paul gave in verses nine through 11, six of them are sexual sins. And then what does he say? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes the problem with sexual sin is we think it is so destructive and so dark and so bad that it makes it where we eliminate the option of being washed, sanctified, and justified. And that's not true. They can be forgiven, cleansed, washed anew, renewed. But we gotta stay away from it and we gotta stop. And that's what Paul says. It is unbelievably destructive. And then he says this in verse 19, and I think he's wrapping this whole thing up with a reminder for us. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The final thing that Paul says as he wraps this whole thing up and he says, listen, Corinthians, listen, Edgewater, listen, James, I need you to have a different perspective. I need you to stop being nearsighted and look at all of eternity because that's gonna change your decision-making today. And as you think about all of eternity, remember this, I bought you. I paid a really really high price for you. And I paid that price so that you would be mine. You would be mine. It, it's like this. And when we, when we treat it like our life is our own and not Christ, it's like we're stealing, right? So let's say, here's an illustration I stole from Mark Scud said many, many years ago. But let's say I own a car. Great car, love this car. And I total this car. And someone else buys it. And they fix it all back up and it's beautiful, and they're driving it around, and I go to Walmart someday, and I come out of Walmart, and I'm like, there it is. There's my old car. And so I remember where the key was hidden, so I get it, and I jump inside, and I take off driving. And then the police pull me over, and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's my car. They're like, no, it's not your car. You totaled it, and someone else paid a high price for it. So now if you drive it around to your own will, you're stealing. 
That's my life. I totaled it. I totaled it with sin. And Jesus paid an unbelievably high price to purchase it, and I'm so thankful. And he paid that price because he wanted me to be his. And that's not a drag, that's a reward. That's the best thing that could ever happen to me. My life is not my own anymore. Why? Because I keep running into things. My life is Christ's. It's hidden his. And if I glorify him with my body, then man, I flourish. I flourish. So 1 Corinthians 6, I think the big thing for me takeaway was this. I gotta think more long-term, less nearsighted. Those slights, they don't matter. They don't matter inside of eternity and they don't matter especially if it causes me to lose a brother. I can just be wronged. It's okay. Why? Because I've received so much grace. I don't really want justice if we're completely honest. And sex, yeah, it's important. It's a big deal, but it's not the end-all be-all. My life is hid in Christ, and that's who I glorify with my body. Amen? Father, thank you for this passage. Difficult words to the church, challenging words for us. I pray that we would hear them and act on them, and that you would bless us even this day. In Jesus' name, amen.